When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. The novel as a genre has always been deeply interested in what constitutes a family. 18th and 19th century British novels dissected the inner workings of the private lives of families. And the novel has never given up its quest to unlock the mysteries of discontent and despair within the family union. It is a universal truth, as Tolstoy wrote, that all happy families are alike, but that unhappy families are each unhappy in their own way. And for that very reason, we return again and again to the complexities of families, their ubiquity, their private versus public existences, their necessity for children and adults. And in Sanae Lemoine's exquisite debut novel, The Margot Affair, the question of how a family fashioned from an affair molds a daughter's sense of self shakes our expectations for how a happy family is made. Margot Louve, the daughter of Anouk, a beautiful dancer and actor, is the child of a long-term affair with a French politician. For years, she understands her father as a sometimes parent coming for visits brief and long, depending on the schedules of a different wife and different children who are but a distant vision to Margot. But while that mystery is a powerful force in her self-conception, she and her mother love her father, even though he is absent more than present. But when that secret becomes too much to bear, a still young Margot decides to expose her father and his two families to the press and her laying bare of secrets becomes a catalyst to a tragedy and to the deconstruction of the foundations that had held the three members of their unusual family together. 
Margot will soon fall into a codependency with the handsome journalist David, with whom she shares her family secrets, and his beautiful secretive wife, with that threesome drawn together by the urgent need to tell stories, to be vulnerable, and to bear witness to things formerly unsaid. Told with a textured and nuanced beauty uncommon in a debut, The Margot Affair manages to be both a coming-of-age story about the limited vision we have as children of our own families, and a tense romantic thriller in which Margot's life begins to mirror that of her mother's. Sanae Lemoine's mastery over the language of introspection and the uncertain blaze of youthful desire creates an intensity of feeling that will not soon leave you. Sanae was raised in France and Australia and now lives in New York City. She is a graduate of Columbia's MFA program in fiction. Welcome to the show, Sanae Lemoine. Thank you, Chris, for that beautiful introduction. I'm so pleased that you're here. I just love this novel. It is incredibly beautiful. It's thrilling. It has a a, a voice that I found very uh, unique and, and uncommon. And I wonder how did this germ of this complicated story of an uncommon family come to you? And was Margot's first person voice always its driving engine? Uh, that's that's such a great question, um, and it's one that the answer has evolved over the years, um, because the germ only became apparent years into the process of writing the book. I started writing the Margot Affair in I think it was early 2012, so long time ago. Um, I had just graduated from college. I was in my first year of the MFA at Columbia. And about six months beforehand, I'd found out that my father had a double family. Um, our oh, my family, goodness. Our family and then a secret family. Um, he, he'd been seeing another person for several years, and together they had two sons. And so I, I hadn't met them yet, but I had learned of their existence, and I was thinking about them a lot that year in sort of an obsessive way when I look back on it. Um, yeah, I'm sure. I was imagining what they looked like. Um, I had I had briefly seen a photo, um, so I had that in my memory. But what 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 it would be like to meet them as well? And as I was thinking about them throughout the year, I also started writing this story that was about a secret child, um, without necessarily connecting the dots, which seems they seem so obvious today, but at the time were less so. Um, but it was one obsession fueling another, maybe. Um, and what really interested me at the time was the story of the hidden child, so not my story, um, what it would be like to be the secret daughter of a politician. Um, I took a story that that in some ways was very different from mine. It was the story of a public family where the stakes were much higher, uh, where the mother is a famous stage actress, the father a politician with presidential ambitions, and the narrator, Margot, is 17 years old, and um, she's been kept hidden up until that point in her life when she decides to expose this family secret. Um, And I think in a way, looking back, it was an act of both curiosity and, and maybe empathy or an attempt to understand what it might be like um, 
to have to have that secret life and whether there would be a similar curiosity and obsession um, on the part of the hidden child. And then to answer the second part of your question, Margot was not the my entryway into the story, or she was not the the voice that you now see on the page. I first started with a lot of peripheral characters um, that were telling her story. The first character was Brigitte, who's the wife of the journalist. She's a ghostwriter. And um, the very first chapter that I wrote of the Margot affair was from her point of view in first person, where she comes across a folder of interviews with this young woman, Margot. And that kind of led me to Margot's family and why Margot would be interviewed by a writer, what about her life might be interesting to to another person. Then I had a classmate of hers um, telling her story. So I was kind of, I was circling around her without really writing in her voice. And it, it was only a few years later that I made the choice to rewrite the entire novel from her perspective. It created a container. It, it gave me the structure of, of one year in her life as well. And it also was a challenge because then there are all these perspective and stories that I still wanted to include in the book, but that wouldn't quite make sense from her point of view and from, from what she knows about her world And so I had to make certain choices of what can I include? What can I keep? How will the story be changed if it's told just from her perspective? This is fascinating because Margot's voice and and the style that comes along with it is so vital. It's like the beating heart of the of the novel. And then to imagine Brigitte, who who remains really uh, really un, unknown to us, she's a great enigma in the novel, and that's part of her uh, Margot's attraction to her. So that's fascinating that you had um, Brigitte having a having a, a kind of knowable interior life and voice there. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's really comforting to hear that you feel like Margot's voice is the beating heart because it felt that way for me when I started writing the book from her perspective. Um, it really did click together. It started to feel like a novel and not just these maybe interconnected short stories, which can sometimes happen when you're writing a first novel. Um, but it felt like it had I guess, a spirit and and one that inspired me to continue living in that world for a long time. But there was something kind of wonderful about having spent so much time with the other characters and sometimes in their heads. I felt like, you know, even if, if they might seem mysterious to the reader or we're only catching glimpses of them, it was so helpful for me as a writer to have that depth of knowledge mm. of, of who that person is and what their history is and what their childhood was like, or, you know, it was, I, I had that full picture. Mm, like an actor who uh, conjures a, a great childhood backstory for a character that we only know as an adult, I guess. Yes. And it's, it's really fun as the writer to then decide what comes to the surface because you have that, the knowledge of the history of the character and you're going to make choices and not everything will be included. It won't be interesting to the reader. It doesn't belong in this book. But to see where where is something going to just rise to the surface or where are we going to catch a glimpse of that and what is that going to look like? And it it makes that whole process a lot easier, at least for me. It felt mm-hmm. like. 
Um, from an American's perspective, this is in some ways a perfectly Parisian story. Politician has a second family hidden from view. But Margot herself makes the point that this isn't like Francois Mitterrand's second family uh, hidden away in, in rural France. Anouk and Margot are hidden in plain sight. Do you feel like there is some particularity of a of a kind of French cultural story here, or are you interested in the universal qualities of families that don't fit cultural expectations? And did it have to be said in Paris in your mind? Yeah, um, maybe I will begin with that last question. Did it have to be set in Paris? It really didn't. And yet, I think it had to be set in Paris, because when I started writing the book, um, I was 22. I had moved to the US when I was 17 for college. And Paris was the place that felt most familiar to me. That was home at the time that I, even though I had moved away from Paris, it was the place of return that I would go back to several times a year where my family lived. And so when I chose a location, I was most interested in the family dynamics and the characters. And I wanted the location to not be a central focus, to be a place that I was familiar with as, as an individual. And so that I wouldn't have to research or think about uh, a lot. Um, and Paris just revealed itself as the most obvious place um, that I felt a real intimacy with and that in a way was easy to write about. So as the years went on and I spent more time in the U.S. and it became my home and Paris uh, was still a place of return but more distant, I started to think a lot more about what it would mean to set the novel in Paris and how I could bring this place to life for a reader who either is familiar with Paris and knows it well or has never been there before. Um, and so wanting it to feel authentic and specific um, and transporting, but without it being necessarily a novel about a place, um, being more focused on the family and the characters. I, I think in the back of my mind, I was always most interested in, in these lives, in, in Margot's life and her mother, her father, this older couple that she becomes entangled with. It was less about whether this is a French story or not, or um, in fact, in calling out the different the difference with François Mitterrand, I, I wanted to emphasize that this was not this the story of a political scandal, for instance. And yet I don't I think it was more kind of a, a subconscious choice. And then when the novel was published, it was so extraordinary to hear from so many readers in the US mostly, but also in Europe, who came from double families or who had a similar experience. Um, mm. Either they were the child of a double family or they were um, on one side or the other. Um, there were so many children of these double families. Um, oh, that's fascinating. Had, yeah, and who had stumbled upon the book, I think, you know, sometimes not even because of the theme. Um, and and recognize themselves, or or there were a lot of readers who were daughters or mothers who um, found echoes between the the mother daughter story in the novel. I've had several readers who are daughters, mothers, and then grandmothers, and who pass mm. along within the family, um, and you know it turns into a mini book club in a way. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> but but that's been the most wonderful and rewarding discovery to know that um, it it is the story about the family and the coming of age story and the mother daughter story and 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 one of maybe feeling divided between two families or being a secret that resonated the most with readers. This leads me to my next question, which is that at, at one point, Anouk tells Margot that, quote, my role isn't to explain everything to you. I can't explain your father to you, and you can't understand what it was like. A marriage is a closed world. Anyone who thinks they can explain it to an outsider is a fool. This is the wonderful paradox of novels and families. Anouk is right about families being closed worlds, but the novel seems built to take us inside their gates. What is the novel able to do as a genre that may or may not give us that insider vision? Yes, I think this is especially interesting when you only have this this one perspective in the first person. And it was something that I thought about a lot with Margot because she's the one who takes us into that world. It's her perspective of a 17-year-old daughter. She doesn't have the experience of being a mother or being a wife, being married. She's just discovering her sexuality and just beginning to understand the choices that her parents made. Um, and so I... I think with this specific book, I wanted to strike that balance between having a real closeness to Margot's experience and an, an intimacy and seeing it very much from, from her limited perspective mm -hmm. based on the knowledge that she has at that stage in her life and feeling that immediacy but then also getting glimpses through conversations like that section that you just quoted of what the adults think and being able to provide that extra layer of knowledge for the reader. Um, you know, if we, we know more than Margot does. And so one of the techniques that I used in the book was characters telling each other stories and their chapters. Sometimes the story is the entire length of a chapter that's been told mm -hmm. by another character. So we have, for instance, Anouk, Margot's mother, describing what it was like to be pregnant with Margot and what the early stages of her relationship with Margot's father were like. And for, for me, as I think both a, a writer to maybe satisfy um, a certain curiosity or desire, and then for the reader as well, it was important to be able to break from Margot's point of view from time to time and pro provide a contrast or another layer or some more breadth. Um, and it seems that's why uh, Brigitte and David are so important because they uh, they appeal to Margot because they offer a different set of uh, facts or stories that can be told about the inside of uh, of a family. Maybe. They yes. Do. Yes. And so David and Brigitte are in their late thirties, early forties. Um, married couple as well. David is a journalist uh, that that Margot meets early on and and tells him about her father. And Brigitte is his wife, who's a ghostwriter. And they they form as the novel progresses, they form a close friendship relationship. Um, and they provide a really interesting contrast 
to Margot's family because, well, especially Brigitte, who is younger than her mother and who's not a mother yet. And she, so she exists in that interesting middle space where she's clearly a generation older than Margot. So she's seen as this kind of older, mysterious person. Um, and yet at the same time, she's much younger than Margot's mother and she isn't a mother yet. Um, and so I think that that opens up a lot of possibilities in terms of what does a marriage look like there? And one that might seem a little more traditional than, than Margot's unusual family structure mm-hmm. uh, is also complicated in its own ways. Although they will prove to be uh, equally complicated yes. as, a, as a couple. <laughs> and I was struck by how what will eventually be Margot's feeling of growing desire for David it seems like it belies the truth of her desire, which is for more information about how to make a couple, how to make a family, and whether there are alternatives to to her own rather than an than a true sexual desire. Am I am I wrong in thinking that? No, I you're absolutely right. I mean, it's all of the above because it's all happening at the same time. I think, especially for Margot, who is right on the cusp of adulthood, but she's still very much a child. She is discovering her body and desire and attraction, um, agency. And at the same time, she's breaking free from her family unit. And it's almost like she's trying on a new family, um, mm-hmm. you know, in a, almost in, in the way that a person would want to be adopted into a family. Yeah. There is, yeah, there is that sense of, her yearning for that in all the hours that she spends in this other apartment um, where she feels so at home, but sometimes she realizes that she's an outsider. And how do you, how do you negotiate that, that space of yeah, going from, from your home into another person's home and, and um, in this kind of very intense, intimate way. And she starts to eavesdrop on them and she sleeps on their couch. Um, so there is definitely that desire for mothering and, um, and being nurtured in another home. Yeah, which I think is is deeply connected to Anouk, her her biological mother, who's a fascinating mother figure in that she's nearly as distant as Margot's father, both because she's often away acting in plays, but also because she's largely a closed book to Margot. What was interesting to you about this mirroring of the absent father and the distant mother? Yes, I... I had never heard it described that way. And so thank you. That's that's exactly right, though, that there is distance in both parents or that Margot feels a loneliness with both her mm. mother and her father in very different ways. And her father, in a way, it's a little easier to understand because he's not physically present a lot of the time and he doesn't live there. And so he's in and out of their home and he splits his time between two families Um, So we can understand the ways that he's more absent than present, but also how he shines brighter when he's there. And Mm -hmm. there is this um, idealizing of of his presence um, and and a a desire to be seen by him, by Margot. 
And then the mother is very physically present in some ways. She sleeps in the apartment every night. She's always there. Um, and yet there's an emotional distance. Um, and and we, we find out as we read on that there was always that, that challenge for her between motherhood and her professional ambitions um, and how to, how to exist um, as both a parent and, as, and an actor and, and um, the, the lover of a married man. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and I think that's, that's really difficult for Margot, who, who yearns to be seen by both of her parents um, and as I was writing the book, at first, I was a lot more interested in her relationship with her father and what it meant to long for him and miss him and want his recognition, both in the private sense, but also a public recognition of legitimacy. And then as I wrote the book, I became a lot more drawn into the mother-daughter story and what is it that Margot desires from her mother? Um, mm-hmm. What could love look like and protection? And especially in thinking about the last scene of the book, if I, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to say what happens, but I, I was thinking a lot about how the mother-daughter relationship has progressed throughout the novel and how this is, how this is a story about the movement of that relationship. It begins in one place, it goes through a transformation and it lands in a different place and I was thinking mm. especially about this idea of maternal protection and yeah. what that could mean for both Anouk, the mother, and Margot, the daughter. One of the things I like most about the Margot affair is the dissonance you create between a beautifully naturalistic description of family life and the sudden appearance of stories of abject horror. <laughs> you like to br- you like to break the wall between genres and and test what the reader will find acceptable, which is my favorite kind of thing in a novel. There are in fact two detailed accounts of cannibalism, one from a film and the other from a play in which Margot is putif- putatively to play a part. Why did you want to have horror emerge within an otherwise classically literary novel? I I love getting this question because it's uh, I I have a fascination with horror, but and I I think part of it was. That, do you watch a lot of horror movies? Yes and no, I do, but with one eye closed, and then <laughs> and then I and then I have nightmares forever. You know, I, I feel like every night I wake up at three in the morning and I think about a horror film. Um, that's still haunting me, but I I find them so interesting, and I think especially for the Margot affair, those inclusions of horror stories were uh, a fun exercise to imagine if if this were a horror story using the same themes, what could it look like? Like let's push this this relationship or this theme to an extreme. And, mm. and what might that be? And there was, um, I, so I do watch, I do watch a lot of movies, right? I'm very inspired by films in my writing. And there was one cannibal coming of age film that really captured my imagination. I love that you use that as though it's a genre of films. <laughs> <laughs> it should be, it should be. Um, it's a French film called Raw by Julia Ducourneau. 
and it came out a couple of years ago. Um, it was her, I think her first feature length film. And it's a story of a vegetarian who's a little bit older than Margot. I think she's maybe 18 or so. And she discovers that she has a hunger for flesh, human flesh. And it's, it's so wonderful because even though it's about cannibalism, it's so much about the pains and pleasures of being young and of discovering desire and um, discovering one's place in the world and uh, how one feels in one's body. And I remember watching that movie and thinking, yes, this is the spirit that I want to capture in the Margot Fair, but I'm not going to write a cannibal coming of age novel. <laughs> so, that's for your, that's for your next, your next attempt. Maybe my, yeah. Next attempt. But you, but you do have moments of that in the book through, for instance, Margot's best friend, Juliette is making a film that is kind that has cannibalistic undertones and there, and Margot has a fascination with horror films too, um, and so I think part of it was was my interest, my own personal interest in it, but then also seeing how thematically it really did connect with so much of what I was exploring in the book when it comes to hunger of all kinds, mm, hunger mm-hmm. for recognition and love and um, sensuality, um, you know, thinking about flesh and skin and, you know, whether it's Margot biting into a sandwich and then feeling um, a strong emotion when David accidentally touches her to uh, watching a horror film with Brigitte and uh, wondering what it would be like to taste human flesh. And, you know, it's all of these things just felt so obviously connected to me that I couldn't not write them into the book well the the play uh, which which margot is sort of enticed to to be a part of involves the ritual devouring of a uh, a young uh, mayor in which the a young girl who lands the killing bite is then appointed the next mayor and it's so ripe with a feminist critique of female jealousy and the devouring of women by other women particularly when it involves questions of power and how community is constituted could you talk about how this is inflected in margot's own story Yes, I mean, we we see that with Margot being kind of at the center of a web of women, and the women are, I would say, the most important characters in the novel. We have a couple of men, but they sort of fall away. Um, Even the father, who was an important presence early on. Um, We have Margot's mother, Anouk, who is this um, ambitious, well-known stage actress. We have Juliette, who's Margot's best friend, who has her own ambitions to be a filmmaker, um, and their friendship, which is one that is both, I think, in some ways, like really pure and loving, um, but also with that tinge of competition and jealousy, and mm. uh, you know, every compliment that they give each other also uh, has a kind of hidden 
meaning to it that kind of hides that that like teenage sharpness. And then there's Brigitte, who uh, Margot in some ways falls in love with or is seduced by and and then also Brigitte is seduced by Margot who is this young girl who who has a story to tell that that Brigitte never had herself and so there are all these kind of mute all of these battling ambitions and seductions and um longings for one another and I was so interested in the overlap of of those different desires but also how they would be in conflict with one another how nothing would ever be clear for instance what what Brigitte wants from Margot at the end of the day um, could both be a bit dangerous but also maybe come from a place as well of of love and care and we're always a little bit unsure whether something is a manipulation or um an act of kindness maybe Mm -hmm. um and so i hoped in creating that web of of women around margot um that we would always exist in that place of uncertainty as to what what these women want from each other and what they what they learn from one another the ways that they help each other and protect one another and also harm one another hmm. That's so nicely said. You write so beautifully about food in this novel. Margot is served a clafoutis with slices of pear hidden beneath the custard, the top sprinkled with shards of toasted almonds, steam clouding the underside of the spoon. As it happens, you are also a cookbook author with, I believe, two cookbooks forthcoming. Can you talk about the crossover between these two modes of writing about food and how the precise descriptions of foods in cookbooks can make their way into a novel? It's so interesting to think about this question because I thought of cookbook writing or recipe writing and fiction writing as such separate things for a long time. Um, I was always working in food as I was writing my novel. Um, I started out with internships and food magazines and then working in a test kitchen and made my way to cookbook editing and today to cookbook co-writing. But so it was always a part of my professional life. And then I love to cook and eat and grew up in a family of uh, very uh, talented home cooks. But when my book came out, so many readers commented on the food and it, it was, I was starving <laughs> throughout reading it. <laughs> I was dying for the pastries. <laughs> well, you know, I it was the kind of thing where I was like, well, the characters have to eat, so I have to tell you. <laughs> How could I not tell you? But I think what, what I love about fiction when it comes to food is that I can just do whatever I like. I mean, there is a certain freedom of, like, I can I can write about... I can write about cannibalism or, you know, I can write about different <laughs> forms of consumption and hunger. Um, whereas when I'm writing a recipe, I'm really adhering to a style. And when I'm writing a head note, which is the description that comes before the recipe, I'm thinking about its usefulness for the reader. Um, am I providing a tip 
or am I helping you understand the recipe better? Am I giving you context that would be important to know before you begin cooking from this recipe? So it's, it feels a lot more technical. And, and though sometimes I'll, I'll, I can see my fiction brain start to kick in and, and I'll kind of, uh, I'll move away from the technical writing and, and a funny detail will, will pop in or a description um, that's, that's mm-hmm. maybe, you know, uh, <laughs> a, a little less um, of, of the genre of cookbook writing. But I love that they speak to different parts of my brain. And I love the physicality of cooking, of being on my feet and making something with my hands. And it's a creative process in the way that writing is, but it's, it's so different and often can be just as frustrating or rewarding. This week I've been developing a lot of recipes and there are days when the recipe comes out so well and I feel really proud and I just sit there and I eat a couple of bites of it and I think this is delicious. Okay, I did mm-hmm. it. And then other times where it's a disaster and it's not going well and I'm remaking the recipe so many times and it's a very labor-intensive job of buying ingredients and making the recipe and doing all the dishes, which, you know, it makes me think a little bit of writing when you're, when you're trying to crack something, when you're, you know, stuck, stuck on the structure or, or paragraph or a character, whatever it, whatever it is, and it's just not flowing. Um, and there is that same kind of frustration um, though. Yeah, I think I think the, the breakthrough moments are maybe more rare and far between with writing than mm. recipes. Um, I can yeah, have- you never quite have that sort of perfect thing sitting in front of you that no. you can say, this is delicious. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's really, you know, and at the end of the day, I can just throw a nice piece of, of bread in, in the toaster oven and put and put a lot of salted butter on it and that will be delicious like I don't have that equivalent um in in my writing (laughs) in my writing life yet um but I can see now how how the food nourishes my fiction and how and how my all my other writing nourishes my recipe writing and I'm trying to be more intentional now in my fiction writing of how am I using food what am how is a, a scene around a dinner table or in the kitchen showing us something about the characters? I think it's those moments are so rich and they're so ripe for tension and all those kind of subterraneous feelings and emotions and interactions. Mm. And I, I love to describe the way that someone is, is cutting an apple and, and what that teaches us about them. Mm-hmm. Will you will you give us uh, a a preview of the cookbooks that you're you're in process with right now, and and when we might be able to to purchase them? Yes. So there's a Japanese home cooking book that um, we it the the details are aren't quite official yet, but it's going to come out in October, end of October of this year, and I'm very excited for this book. Um, it. The author is an incredible recipe developer and cook. Um, She was born and raised in Japan, but has been living in the U.S. for several years now. And her recipes are very accessible, but also I think will surprise you from the way that she incorporates Japanese ingredients and techniques, but also has adapted them to an American kitchen. 
sometimes. That one, I think it comes out end of October. We're still finalizing the date. And, I can't and, wait for that one. Yes, that and, just sounds like a dream come true. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I, I can't wait to, to give it to everyone and, and recommend it widely. And then the other book that I'm working on that I'm also co-writing, and this one I'm writing with a friend, um, Olga Masov, who is a food editor at the Washington Post. And this is a sheet pan book. So it's all recipes that can be made in a sheet pan. And that book is coming out tentatively in 2024. And this is the one that I'm still recipe testing for. Um, and so I've been using my oven nonstop. Thankfully, it's the winter. So I can mm. have my oven on 24-7. I really, I really love these recipes because... They're also home cooking recipes that are very accessible, but they're kind of taken up a notch and they're a little more elegant or surprising than you might think. This is not your average sheet pan book. It will hopefully stretch your understanding of what a sheet pan can do for you. I can't wait. That those both sound amazing. <laughs> and I'm and I'm wondering before I let you go whether you might have some recommendations for fiction or nonfiction, but maybe even a, a another cookbook for us. I have so many cookbook recommendations, um, but the one that I come back to over and over again, and that I have been cooking from for years, is a book by Mira Soda. I mean, I recommend any book or any recipe by Mira Soda, um, but I think this is her first book, um, Made in India, which I really love. And the recipes are so flavorful, so easy, and she has a wonderful voice. I just love reading what she has to say about her recipes as well. And then in terms of books, um, there are two books that I read last year that I've been thinking about a lot. One is called Cold Enough for Snow by Jessica Aw. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but it's very short. It's I think it's 94 pages long, and it was recommended by one of my favorite writers, Aisha Gol Savash, who wrote Walking on the Ceiling and White on White. Um, and she had, had mentioned this book to me saying, Sana, I think you're going to love it so much. And then I picked it up and she was right. Um, it's it's just. When did it come out? I think it came out last year, and I okay. think the author might live in Australia. It's a, it's a the story of a mother and daughter who are traveling in Japan, and I won't say more than that. But I traveled to Japan with my mom in 2014, and we hadn't gone back in 10 years, and we spent mm. three weeks together in Japan, and it was this this really intense <laughs> moment of uh, intimacy between us. And so I think reading this book, which is so different from, from my experience with my mom, transported me back to that time, but was also just such a beautiful reading experience in terms of the sentences. Oh, that sounds the incredible. Way, the way that she describes a place that is both foreign and familiar to the narrator. And then the other book that I just, I have been recommending to everyone because I loved it so much is Tides by Sarah Freeman, which I I think I've read two or three times now. And it came out a year ago, I think almost exactly a year ago. And Sarah Freeman is one of the most beautiful sentence writers that I've met. 
I just, um, she's the kind of writer I'll follow anywhere. And this is why I keep rereading this, re-reading this book as I wait for whatever she writes next. Um, but it's her debut novel. And it's, uh, it's a story about a woman who leaves her home at the beginning of the novel. We don't know why. And she ends up in this small seaside town um, starting a new life, escaping tragedy, something that happened in her past. Well, th- these sound like incredible uh, uh, recommendations, and I'm excited for new Indian cooking, but also these beautiful stories. And I can't recommend enough The Margot Affair. And Sane, it was so nice to talk to you about it and to have such deeper insights into your craft and your thinking about this wonderful story. And um, it was a privilege to get to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Your questions were really, um, they were incredible. They made me think about my novel in new ways, which, you know, it's, it's been a little while since it came out. So that is very much a testament to your gift as, a, as an interviewer. So thank you. Thank you so much. That's so nice of you. Well, that's all for me for now. My thanks to the lovely and brilliant Sanae Lemwen for joining me to discuss her debut novel, The Margot Affair. I, for one, am dying to have a look at her two forthcoming cookbooks, so keep an eye out for them as well. You can purchase The Margot Affair and all of Sanae's recommended novels and cookbooks at the website burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes as well as more information about the show. I've got a luminous bunch of interviews forthcoming, including with Daisy Florin, Julia Langbein, and Kashana Cowley. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. (laughs) 